you have your Bible, turn with me quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 5. You got an iPad, that's fine too, or an iPhone. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, thank you for all your prayers and kindness for me during the last week. I was away taking a, a master's course uh, in theology at Urshan, and so uh, it's been all day, every day with class, and so... <laughs> I'm a little weary, but I feel the presence of God. <laughs> I feel the presence of God. Second Samuel chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome all of our guests. I know many of you are here for the dedication, but I hope that something we do in worship or something that I say today is a blessing and an encouragement to you. Amen? That I know why you came and I know what got you here, but maybe you'd get some icing on the cake as well. Or maybe a cherry on top of the Sunday, however you want to see it. Whatever metaphor works for you. Second Samuel 5, verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 33 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah, over the whole of Israel. Verse 10, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. Verse 12, and David realized or perceived that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. For a few moments, I want to preach to you about the epiphany of establishment. The epiphany of establishment. The key phrase here is that David perceived that God had established him. God feels a lot of things about us at times that we don't know. Or even if he tells us through his word or through our private prayer, we don't believe. So, God being my helper, Father, we ask you to just bless the word. Bless the people here, God. Help me not belabor the point or go too long. I'm the only thing standing between them and lunch. Help me, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <laughs> See, um, something that I've been praying about and uh, studying for some time, and this verse really helped me to flesh it out a little more. It, you have to understand, it took faith for David to defeat Goliath. Yet identity was required to make, uh, to take the throne. He had to have the identity of kingship. Faith brought David victory over the lion and the bear and the giant, but identity would be needed to fulfill his destiny. Faith believes what God can do, right? That God can do anything, but identity believes what God can do through you. One, faith is about God's ability and God's power and God's nature, amen? 
Our faith is in Him. He's the object of our faith. It's not about the quality of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. Do you know who He is? you know what He's capable of? you know what He's done in the past? But identity is, can God do that through me? Because it doesn't matter what God can do if you don't believe He can do it through you. It doesn't matter what God is capable of if you think He won't use you. God brings peace, and that's our faith in his ability, right? But can he bring peace through you? That's identity. Until David perceived that he was king, his activities didn't match up with his destiny. He's running for his life and hiding in caves, even though he's been anointed as the next king. But when you perceive your new position in life, your goals and purposes and activities will shift as you enter into your new season. you got to have a new identity for a new season. God wants to take you places you've never been before and work through you in ways that he never has before. But you have to accept who you are in him through the power of his spirit. And as a called man or woman of God. In Jeremiah, when he calls Jeremiah, he said, I knew you in your mother's womb. Before you were formed, I called you. Jeremiah says, but I'm just a youth. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And God says in verse 7, say no longer you're a child. In other words, you're disagreeing with what I believe about you and what you're capable of. You're disagreeing. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't lie. That's not a pep talk. That is what's true of Jeremiah. You're capable. You've got it in you. Now you've got to walk in that and stop making excuses. Here's what happens when God tries to call us out. We always see our disqualifications. Right? I'm not that great a speaker. You know, I need a better prayer life. Or, you know, I'm not that singer or whatever. That's what we do. We tell him why we shouldn't, like he's missed it on us. Imagine telling God why he's missed it about you. He doesn't take kindly to that. He doesn't make mistakes. He knows who he's calling. He knows what you're capable of. He knows the spirit that's in you. Stop arguing with the call of God and say, yeah, I can do it. If you call me, then that qualifies me. If you think I can do it, I believe I can do it. Work through me. Use me. See, whenever God visits a man in the scriptures, it was the end of one season and the beginning of another one. Identity shifts are required for a new season. New honor is given to release a new realm of authority. At the very core of our identity, our destiny shift, there must be an identity shift. You cannot... David was a, a man after God's heart when he was a shepherd. But his identity of shepherd had to be replaced with an identity of king. He couldn't enter into his new season until he accepted what God wanted him to be. See, that, the way we see ourselves is crucial to our own destiny. We can't see ourselves correctly until the father speaks to us about us. It takes a father to reveal a son. Y'all don't hear me. I said it takes a father to reveal a son. That's why 
Paul said you have 10,000 instructors, but you have not many fathers. See, our problem in, in, in church now is we're always clamoring for the next teacher and the next preacher and the next revelation. And he said what you need to unlock your identity is a father who will stand alongside of God and say you can do it. You are able. You have the spirit. You have a calling. Go for it. The, the old doesn't leave because we're tired of it. It only leaves when the new displaces it. If you got an old identity that, that your family gave you, you know, family writes on your belief window when you're young, never amount to anything, dumb, right? And that's your belief window. It sets out in front of you. And when you look out at challenges, a lot of the time what they've said about you affects whether you go forward or not. A lot of us would never go to college because somebody told us we'll never amount to anything. I'm here to tell you, you need to hear the Father speak about you. Not your earthly father. Not, uh, not your family who told you those things. But you need to hear God Almighty say, I can use you. I can work through you. I can bless. I can heal through you. I can bring revival through your ministry. See, the new starts. Now get this very carefully. The new starts when we accept what God is speaking over us. It doesn't start because he says it. It starts when you believe it and when you start repeating it. You, you don't hear me. See, we have to agree what he already speaks and believes about us. When we start speaking what God has said about us, then his word is established. The Bible said David perceived that God had established him as king. You hear me? You know this scripture? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. See, when God speaks something over you and calls you, you have to say amen. You're the second voice. And then hopefully there's a father in the gospel that'll be the third voice that establishes that and says you're called. You can be used of God. You're anointed. Go out there and do it. You're capable. God will do it through you. He's no respecter of persons. See, David, for David, that's a new season. No more running from Saul. No more hiding among the enemy. The Philistines are ruling over a portion of Israel that he ruled for seven and a half years. Now all of Israel acknowledges God's purpose. They came and finally said what God had said. You're our king. You're the one God has chosen. Each shift in our life requires our personal discovery, maturing growth, testing, and finally our agreement with what God says through active obedience to allow him to use our lives for his own glory. If our identity is defined by our assignment instead of who we are to the Father, the shift to the next season will be very difficult. Even though assignments can reveal identity, they cannot be the source of identity. I'm going to show you something in the scripture in a moment. I'm going to show you how God starts and I'm going to show you how men start. God, when he calls a man, he always starts with identity and assignment. We always start with behavior. God knows that behavior, right behavior, comes out of new identity and assignment. It comes out of value and purpose. Right? 
I, I've shared this with you before, but, but I'll share it once again. You know, if, if one of you got a letter uh, that the king of England or the queen of England found out that you are in her lineage, and all these years you had been, they didn't realize that you had royal blood in you. And so they decided in that letter because of all the years that you've been out your identity that they're going to back pay you all your stipend for those years and that you are going to be invited to the celebrations and commemorations and all the pomp and ceremony. How do you think you would deal with leanness after that? If you had a little trouble financially, you'd be like, I'm kin to the queen. I got resources. I got somebody I can call about this, right? That's the way you're supposed to see God. You're not supposed to panic because your identity says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he's my father. I don't panic because of circumstances because I've got an identity that's greater than the circumstances. My identity outweighs the circumstances. Our problem is we let the circumstances identify us. The circumstances are a test of identity. Do you know who you are in God? See, faith focuses on God and his ability. Identity focuses on us and what God can do through us. It's easier to believe what God can do than to believe what he can do through us. Right? God is looking for people who believe that he can do it through them. Faith can peak in a moment, but identity requires sustained vision of who you are. Remember Moses at the burning bush? He sees this bush burning with fire. It's been 40 years since he tried to defend his people in Israel. He's settled for shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And he sees the burning bush and goes over See, identity must be held in place by thoughts we receive from the Father. Faith is more fruitful when it operates from our true identity. Okay? When, you are, when we are called, he always tells us who we are first. He always starts with identity. It is absolutely necessary. When God visited Moses at the burning bush, God had to change the way Moses saw himself more than the way Moses saw God. I mean, you got a burning bush that's not burning. You, you don't need much faith, right? You're having an experience, a tangible experience. It's there, and there's a voice speaking to you and telling you, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. You feel that reverberate through you, right? But what does Moses say when he says, I want to use you to deliver the people of Israel? I'm slow of speech. I'm disqualified. You ought to pick somebody else. That's, that's not me. That's not who I am. Right? He's got to change Moses' identity before he can take on the assignment. See, when God first calls us, we see our disqualifications first, and we try to veto his vote by pointing out our weaknesses. Yeah? Watch. Here's what Moses says. Or God says, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, this is Exodus 3, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out? 
See, it's about identity. It's not about faith. It's about identity. If you don't know who you are and how he sees you, Moses has resigned himself to his current occupation. That stirring and that holy boldness that had moved him to intervene between two of his Israelites and kill an Egyptian taskmaster is a distant memory. That was, I felt that at one time. I don't feel that anymore. Identity is not based on your feelings. God doesn't change his mind about you. The calling and the callings of God are without repentance. God never backs off somebody he calls. They may have made a mess of their life. They may have made some bad decisions. But God says, I can still use you. Tell your testimony. Come back to God. Give yourself to him and he'll work through you. Watch this, Exodus 4. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. He said, take that staff and throw it down and it'll become a snake. He said, if that doesn't convince them, he said, put your hand in your breast and it'll come out leprous. He said, finally, if they don't do that, take that staff and hold it over the Nile and it'll become blood. Exodus 4 and 12, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? He said, I'm slow of speech. I'm tongue-tied. I'm not, I'm not eloquent. He said, who's made man's mouth or makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But Moses said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Watch this very carefully. Then the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. Kindled against Moses. He said, are you, you think you know better than me? I know who you are. I know where you've been. I know the mistakes you've made. I still want to use you. You're my guy. You're my guy. You're my son. You're my anointed. You're the deliverer. I don't have, I don't have a plan B. You're it. I hear people all the time say, well, if you don't do God's will, somebody else will do it. It's not true. There's something only you can do in the kingdom. That's how unique we are. And if you don't do what God has called you to do, it doesn't get done. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a backup plan. He said, you're my guy, you're my woman, and I want you to do this. That's your identity. But God doesn't make mistakes. When he chooses a man or a woman, he has his reasons. They may not be obvious to the one who's called or their family or their peers, but God has his reasons and he doesn't always let us know what they are. God is saying, you're the deliverer. Confront Pharaoh in the confidence of your new identity. Bringing an identity shift to his servants is probably one of God's most difficult jobs because it requires our agreement. It requires our agreement. We have to agree for that to be established. It doesn't matter. It it matters little how certain God is about your identity if you refuse to believe it. If you say, it's not me, I can't do that. God can't use me. I got all this history. I got all this past. I got drugs. I got this. I got that. What that tells me is you don't believe in the power of the blood. You don't believe that it's under the blood. You don't believe he's cast it as far as the east is from the west. Because my Bible tells me that if I've repented of it and I've confessed it, then God has cleansed me of all unrighteousness, right? 
When you start talking about your past, when God is trying to give you a new identity, that proves you don't believe in the power of the cross. Now, you believe it up here, but you don't believe it in your actions. I hear people all the time say, well, I, can, I can't forgive myself. Do you understand what you're saying when you say that? <laughs> you're saying that you're more severe than God. He saw the blood of Jesus, and that satisfied his wrath on sin. But when you say, I can't forgive myself, you think you're holier than God? Huh? See, you, we say stuff, and we don't think about it. It comes out of our mouth, and we're like, you, you don't realize what you're saying. I mean, God required the death of a sinless Jesus to satisfy his wrath against sin. And now that it's satisfied, the Bible says, confess your sins and he's faithful and just. Not merciful. I don't hear that. Not merciful. It is just because I've got my faith in the sacrifice of Jesus that satisfied his wrath. So I don't have to be afraid anymore. I don't have to be intimidated anymore. He cleansed me. He washed me. I'm telling you, hear me. We've done the five-fold ministry a disservice. In order to keep us humble, we say God can use anyone, and that's true. God spake through a stubborn mule. He used a backslidden prophet named Balaam to bless the people of God and a pagan king named Cyrus as his battle axe. I know he can use anybody. I believe that. Right? I believe in the priesthood of the believers. Everyone has a purpose in the kingdom. God can use anyone. But hear this very clearly. He doesn't call everyone to give their entire life to the gospel. He may call you for a service within the kingdom, but he doesn't call everyone to give their entire life for the gospel. I agree, there's nothing special about pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets, but God saw something in us that is not obvious to everyone else. Maybe we're simply available or moldable, maybe even open to leave our occupation and give everything for the kingdom. But God's calling qualifies me. God's calling qualifies me. And if I don't believe in who I am and who he said I am, I'll never start walking in my assignment. I'll never start walking in my assignment. See, ever look at the, the uh, qualifications for an elder or a bishop or deacon or whatever you want, word you use. It's different in every church, but they're not super spiritual. Apt to teach. Husband of one wife. All right, not a brawler. Not a drinker. It doesn't say anything about their gifting or their ability. It says they are an exemplar of mature Christianity. That's it. That's it. That's, that's all it says. But we always say, oh my gosh, if, if they're on the platform, you know, they're, they're somebody special. No, we're not. We're sinners just like you. We got our problems and area growth just like you, amen. God's still working on me and he's not done with me. But I still have a calling. And that calling qualifies me when I don't feel qualified. That calling qualifies me when I feel weak and I don't think I can do it. I depend on him and his power and his spirit. Watch this. Watch this. Here, get this. God starts with identity and assignment. 
This is Judges 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that is at Orpha, which belonged to Joash, the Abezerite. The son of Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. You with me? He's hiding in the winepress, trying to thresh out some wheat. He's a wimp. He's afraid. And God's first response to him is, oh, mighty man of power. That's true. That's not a pep talk. God doesn't lie. That's true of him. He just doesn't know it. He's letting his circumstances define his identity instead of the Father's voice. Don't let your circumstances define you. It's the Father's voice that defines you, right? You understand this. I don't, I, I don't put my identity in people's hands. God gave me that identity. I'm not going to put it in your hands. You may go, I, it's not great preaching. That's fine. That's your opinion. <laughs> don't bother me. I'm still called, <laughs> right? Somebody may say something about music. I, I think that was a little off. If you got an identity, everybody's got an opinion. That's all right. It doesn't affect your identity, I don't give my peace that it costs Jesus his life to give me to somebody else. Their opinion. I just don't do it. I don't do it. Sorry, Jesus died to give me that peace. And let me say this to you parents with kids. Too often, we are only as happy as our least happy child. That is an affront to Jesus Christ. Hear me. Hear me. Jesus died for your forgiveness and for your joy. And you take what he died to give you and you put it in the hands of a child who's not living for God. And the only time you'll ever truly be happy is when they come to God. That's wrong. I understand you're a mom. I understand you want your children to be saved. I'm not talking against that. But when you take your peace and your joy and you put it in the hands of somebody else's will... That is a disservice to the cross of Calvary and the outpouring of the Spirit. Don't do it. I know you love them. I know you want them to be saved. But you don't take what it costs Jesus to give you and put it in the hands of somebody else. You keep living for God. You keep believing the Word. You keep believing the promises. God will bring them back. (laughs) So God says, oh, mighty man of valor. Then Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all these negative things happened? The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, oh, Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. In other words, my family is the wimpiest family, and I'm the wimpiest guy in my family. We've all wimped out. Until he stops saying that and says, I am a mighty man of valor because you say I am. It's not a pep talk. See, we always read from a human perspective. And we think, well, that's just a pep talk. He really is a wimp. No, he's not. He just doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know. He's letting his circumstances define him. They've got an army that's always stealing from them and stealing their crops. So he, he's over here hiding, trying to, trying to get a little cake. And God said, that's not my will for you. That's not my will. You've accepted the circumstances as my will. 
He said, I want to deliver you and take the yoke of Midian off your neck. But I got to find somebody who believes what I say. (laughs) I got to find somebody who will agree with what I say about them. See, God calls things that are not as though they were. (laughs) If like Gideon, we will go in the strength we have, we will experience the strength he has. He said, I know you don't have full strength. I know you don't have full confidence. Go in what you got. Work in what you got. Start where you are. You don't have enough knowledge. You're not credentialed with any organization. Fine. Start where you are. Praise God. Use the strength you have. Teach a Bible study. Pray for somebody. Love somebody. Start where you are. See, God has to change Gideon's identity before Gideon could embrace his destiny. I'm going to skip some of this, okay? Is that all right with y'all? It's like Israel in the wilderness. They're always making excuses for why they're unprepared, unskilled, insufficient. And all this questions the wisdom of God. Until you accept you're called and qualified, you can never be established in ministry. See, complaining reveals that we see our circumstances as greater than our identity. Is what God says greater than what you experience? Why? Why why is that important? Oh, come on, class. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. When your circumstances are defining you and affecting your emotions, you're walking by sight. Well, what I see around me is loss. What I see around me is struggle. What I, it doesn't matter what's around you. That doesn't define you. That's not your identity. That's just a temporary circumstance you're going about. And what you need to do is remember your identity in those circumstances. And you'll walk out of it. That's why David said, yay, though I walk through the valley of shadow death. He said, I stop and have a pity party. He said, I'm in it. I'm not, a, I'm not an optimist. He said, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm going through. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to fold up in the fetal position and have a pity party. I'm going to keep walking because I know this is not my destiny. This is my circumstance, but it's not my identity. And I know if I keep following the shepherd, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. It'll find me. It'll pursue me if I follow the shepherd. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to pray about it. I'm not doubting prayer. I love prayer, okay? I'm a person of prayer. But if you're following the shepherd, goodness and mercy is going to find you. And the word there is, is not good. In the Hebrew, it means pursue. It means chase down. It's an active chasing. That if I keep following him, that's going to chase me down and overtake me. But our problem is we stop following the shepherd and we go, I want peace and I want blessing and I want those things. I want you to change my circumstances. He says, no, I want to change your identity and prove to you regardless of the circumstances, you're anointed. You're in the favor of God. You're blessed. You're chosen. You're my son and you're my daughter. See, (laughs) Egypt and the promised land, the Israelites couldn't shift their identity from slaves to warriors. 
They chose a slave relationship over a son relationship with God. They were comfortable with the lifestyle of Egypt. They said in Exodus 20, they said, we're afraid of Yahweh. You go to him and come back and tell us what he says. See, because Israel saw Yahweh like Pharaoh, they related to him in the same way. This is the God who got you out of Egypt, who opened the Red Sea. But they related to him like Pharaoh. They didn't trust him because they didn't trust Pharaoh, and rightfully so. But, I mean, he didn't lead you out of the wilderness to let you die in the wilderness, right? He didn't lead you out of Egypt. To, he didn't teach you how to swim to let you sink. Come on. Doesn't make any sense. That's irrational. What you have been... What you've been saved from is not as great as what you've been saved for. Now, what you've been saved from is great, and that's awesome, and that's incredible. But what you've been saved for is far greater. Amen. God, we're going to rule and reign with Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. We're going to be the head and not the tail. Hallelujah. See, identity is more difficult to grasp because we approach it incorrectly. Traditionally, in our culture, we gain our identity from what we do instead of who we are. We must live from our new identity in Christ, not from the experiences. A new way of thinking cannot be contained in a new, uh, an old identity. You have to put new wine in new wineskins. You have to have an identity change really before you receive the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Yeah. You have to understand old things have passed away. All things have become new. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Right? You know what our problem is? Most of us are better doers than beers. Yahweh is the great I am, not the great I do. I am. Not the great I do, right? He's calling us to be I amers as well. I am a son of God. I am adopted. I am called. I am qualified. I am full of the Holy Ghost. I am his child. I am an heir and joint heir with Christ Jesus. I am. Not one day I'll achieve it. I am. It's an identity that's not achieved. It's an identity that's received. Right? When you get adopted and that new family gives you that new name, you didn't achieve that. You received that. They, they, they don't go, you know what, we're going to take you into our house for a few months and if you behave real well, we'll adopt you. We'll go ahead with the adoption. That, that's not unconditional love. That's conditional. Right? I always told my girls, I said, I hope you always live for God. I hope this is a, a beautiful life that you always live. But I said, if you don't for some reason, it won't change the way I feel about you. I may not agree with your lifestyle. I may not agree with your choices. But it, my love is unconditional. It is not based on you doing the will of God. Because I'm a father. You understand that? I know it's hard to say that. I know we think, am I condoning the behavior? No, you're not condoning the behavior. You're condoning their identity to you. As a father, as a mother, you're saying, hey, it does not change because that's the way Jesus loved me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. So I can treat my kids like that. Because that's how God treated me. All right, I'm quitting. 
I want to tell you about the forgotten son. When Saul has his issues, Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he calls his seven sons. And I don't, I did some study on this and it, it appears that Jesse had such a low opinion of David that he didn't even make him aware of the prophet's visit. He wasn't invited. There are Jewish explanations for David's rejection. Some say that David was illegitimate. That's why he wasn't brought with the other seven sons. And David, there's some, there's some proof. Now, understanding the scripture, there's some things that are possible. There's some things that are probable. And there's some things that are provable. Don't make something that's possible provable. All right? So I'm just telling you, I think there's some support for him being illegitimate. Because he says in Psalm 69, he says, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. The Hebrew root word for stranger or estranged means illegitimate. He goes on to say, verse 11 and 12 of that, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit at the gate talk about me, and I am the song of drunkards I've been made fun of. Verse 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I'm so sick, and I look for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none, not even in my own family. Those seven sons come in, and Samuel, whose word did not fail, looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed. And the Lord said, that's not him. I've rejected him. Not he's not the one. I've rejected him. On the basis that you think with your eyes you can determine who's qualified. You don't hear me. He said, man, he looks on what he can see, but I, I see the intent of the heart. I try the reins of the heart. I know who's pliable. I know who may not have it all together, but I can use them. Remember how his brothers treat him when he comes to bring them some food, right? They say, you're, you're wicked. You wanted to see the bloodshed, didn't you? Who'd you leave those little sheep with? They talked down to him. He goes, what have I done to you guys, right? Even Samuel was convinced that Eliab could be the next king. He resembled Saul. Remember, Saul was head and shoulders above every man in Israel. See, Samuel still has a Saul mentality in a David season. <laughs> you remember this temptation of Jesus? Satan tempts Jesus. Two of the three tests are a test of identity. They're not a test of biblical knowledge. They're not a test of, of, of commitment to God. They're a test of identity, Right? He said, if you are the son of God, make these stones bread. I doubt you're him. I know Yahweh. I know that majesty around the throne. He said, you kind of stink. You've been out here. You hadn't, you hadn't anything to eat for 40 days. Your breath is funky. You look human to me. I don't think you are the son of God. Right? <laughs> I don't think you are. I, I don't know how to... The incarnation is so mysterious that even Satan is like, 
He's just poking around for information. He, does, he, he can't process this. He knows the spirit. He knows the father, right? Who's this cat? He said, if you are the son of God, make these stones bread. And then finally, he takes him up to a high pinnacle. And he says, jump down. Because Psalm 91.11 says that he gives his angels charge over thee. Lest you dash your foot against a stone, right? He said, if you are the son of God. You know what Jesus is saying? The reason that he doesn't make the stones bread or doesn't jump down. He's saying, I don't have to prove anything by doing. I am his son. I don't have to do anything to prove it. Why, why could he say that? Well, go back one chapter. When he's baptized, what happens? The angel descends, right? Spirit descends. And a voice from heaven said, this is my, now, right now, he is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He said, the father defines my identity, not my doing, not my miraculous power, not my preaching. The father gave me an identity and I don't have to prove anything to you. I don't have to prove anything to you. Stand with me. I'm going to show you something real quick. You remember that Psalm 91 where he took him up to the pinnacle and he quotes from Psalm 91? Let's see if I can find this for you real quick. You'll enjoy this. Psalm 91. Why was it that when Jesus started casting out demons in the New Testament that they expected that as a sign of the Messiah? Do you see any... any uh, Exorcisms in the Old Testament, those of you who might know. You don't, do you? So why was it when Jesus comes along that they go, wait a minute, this is the Messiah. This could possibly be Messiah because he, he can cast out demons. It's because there are about five Psalms in the Old Testament that talk about Canaanite deities or evil spirits. Psalm 91 is one of them. Okay? When we read it, because we, we're English, we don't get it. So he says in verse 3, Surely he will save me from the fowler's snare and the deadly pestilence. What it means is he'll save me from the Canaanite evil spirits. We don't have a way in English to interpret that, right? He goes on to say, uh, You shall not fear the terror at night. What's the terror at night? That's a spiritual thing. Okay? Right, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. That's that's spiritual wickedness is what that is. And so what they understood was that David, David had the power to exercise demons. And that his son would be able to exercise demons. All right. Through these five, there's five of them. That's one of them. I'll give you the other sometime. But watch this very carefully. Remember when he takes him up there? I don't think that Satan misquotes Psalm 91 and 11. I think he quoted it right. Cast yourself down. They will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Because he's poking, remember? He doesn't, he doesn't know this whole incarnation thing. Like, you look like a guy. I don't know if you're the son of God or not. You look like a regular old Israelite. He's poking for information. What if, God, what if Jesus jumps off that pinnacle and the angels catch him? You know you can't kill him. He's got to die. You see? 
So it, it, it wasn't about him misquoting something. He's like, I'm not giving you that information. Because if you realize that they bear me up, then you'll think you can't kill me. And I got to die in order to make atonement. He's got to go to the cross. He's got to make atonement. Amen. Thank God that he wouldn't let that out there because he knows that if I show him my true power and my true identity, he won't continue with his plan to crucify me. Remember, the, the, the Bible says, if they had known he was the son of man, he would not have crucified him. He didn't understand his identity. That whole incarnation was a mystery to them too. Father, we got some people in here who need an identity that comes from you. Maybe a church. You're not who the church says you are. Hear me. You're who the Father says you are. You're not who your family says you are. You're who the Father says you are. And you're anointed and you're chosen. And God wants to work through you and use you in a mighty way. And so if you're in the ministry... I want you to know whether you're a lay ministry or five-fold ministry or whatever you see, it's fine. You're chosen. You're his guy. You understand that? You don't ever back off of that. You don't ever back off of that. LD, you're his guy. You're his man. I used to say this when I'd go preach. Say, I'm nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. The Lord ripped me. He said, you're not nobody. You're my somebody. He said, you're my somebody. He said, you're my son. I called you. I knew who you were. I knew all your problems. I knew your disqualifications. I knew them, but I called you anyway. Don't you back off of what I've called you to do in this end hour. 